Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder that even those few lines uh, we just sang give us that the only way our cup gets filled up is if you do it. We are constantly trying to fill it ourselves and fill it with things that can't actually fill it. And what we really need is for you to fill it with yourself. So we ask that you would do that in these moments. We thank you that you are the living God and that you are the one who can make us whole. And so as we now turn to your word, we just simply ask that you would speak to us. Please uh, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us this morning. I pray, God, that as I speak, it would be your words. And I pray that the beauty and the truth of your gospel would be seen. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. That was a, half, that was a half-hearted clap. Go in or go home. Go big or go home. Um, good morning. It's so great to be back with you. Uh, I want to say a special thank you to Elder Anthony Stafford, who held service down last week and preached a wonderful word. And uh, I'm just, I think it's been awesome in this season. We run pretty lean, uh, like staff-wise, at ALCF, and it's just been wonderful in this season how God continues to raise up gifted people to preach and teach and serve in all the functions of the church, like our worship team. Uh, it's, been a, it's been an amazing thing to watch God do that. Uh, we are continuing in Mark today. So if you will meet me in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. I'll give you a minute to get there, or it will be up on the screen. Uh, isn't this pretty sweet right here? I, I, that said... I, I tend to hang my toes out over the edge when I preach, and I'm getting nervous that I'm going to start kicking them down one by one. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's and they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, have you ever been in a place that you knew you shouldn't be? <laughs> Somebody's laughing. <laughs> they have. Uh, have you ever been in a place that you felt like super uncomfortable? And you're like, I, I should not be here. Somebody's like, right now. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. You're welcome here. Uh, it was my, uh, it was like my junior, sophomore, junior year of high school. And uh, I was going to spend the night with a friend at another friend's house. And so about 8 o'clock on a Friday night, those two guys came to pick me up. And I thought we were going to one of their houses to play video games and spend the night. 
Uh, they said, as we were pulling out of my driveway, that another kid in our class, who I didn't know that well, wasn't like a close friend, but knew him well enough, that he was having some people over, and we were going to stop by there. And so I was like, all right, no, no big deal, sounds good. And so we head over to this person's house, and uh, as we get there and pull up, I recognize, I realize pretty quickly, this is not, he's having a few people over, right? It's, it's cars up and down both sides of the street. And uh, we go into the house, and it's like half of my class is there, and his parents are not there. Yep, I heard some groans. And so you can just imagine what it was like. It was a full-blown high school, parents aren't home house party. There were things happening that you need to be 21 to do, and nobody in that house was 21. And we've talked about this in the past, and so I don't, you know, I want to, you know, beat a dead horse, but I just need to remind some of you what preteen and teenage Gary was like. Somebody's laughing already. Uh, I had a closet full of pleated khaki pants uh, and polo shirts. I had, uh, most days, I had a healthy amount of L.A. Looks hairstyling gel <laughs> in my hair. Not for a faux hawk or for a spike or a flat top to, to keep it down so the part would be tight and the colic wouldn't stick up in the back. I was a church kid. I spent, like, you know, when I talked earlier about church in the morning and church at night, that's what I did. Uh, I listened to the newsboys and DC Talk. Uh, you don't have to cheer for that. I wouldn't cheer for that. <laughs> One time in middle school, a friend gave me a, a tape with a Green Day album on it. And I wrote Amy Grant on the tape and hit it because <laughs> I was a church kid. And I didn't do those kind of things. I didn't listen to that kind of music. And I certainly didn't go to those kind of parties that I found myself at that night. So pretty quickly, I was like, I should not be here. I was, I was very uncomfortable. I was very out of my element. People knew I was the church kid. I had a reputation to maintain. And, and I was like, this could be the night, this could be the first night in jail for, for little Gary, little high school Gary Anderson. We didn't stay that long. Nothing happened. We left. I went to my friends' houses. To my knowledge, no law enforcement ever came. And it, it, is, it is what it is. I didn't really run with that crowd in high school, uh, but I didn't really run with the church crowd either. Most of my friends in high school would not have called, were not Christians, uh, but most of them were athletes, and so they were really concerned about not getting disqualified from their athletic endeavors, and so they weren't really the party crowd either. And so I kind of had a sweet spot as I went through high school with the group of friends that I had. But when we went to college, that changed. You know, most of them weren't going on to college athletics, and most of them went to colleges and lived the life that 98% of college kids live. If you're younger in college and don't know what I'm talking about, younger than college, ask your parents, you know, this afternoon at lunch. I was in the 2%, right? Khaki pants, you know, polo shirts. I went to a Christian college. And so I didn't live the life that most college kids live. And what I found as we started going through college is I had a harder and harder time staying in contact with my friends because I didn't know how to engage with them in a lifestyle that I didn't approve of. I, I didn't know how to hang out with them. I, I didn't know how to interact with them in their sin. I didn't know how to be around it. Now, like, understand that the way I say that because I got my own sin. But I really struggled with 
what does it look like? Like, how, how, do I, how do I stay friends with them when they're always doing stuff that I don't want to be around and I don't think they should be doing? And so what happened is as we started moving through high school, I started to moonwalk, right? I started to, to disengage. I, I, I called them less. I texted them less. We hung out less and less because I just didn't know how to engage with their lifestyle based on what my belief system was. And to this day, most of those guys are still friends. Their kids are friends now. And I hardly have any contact with them at all. And that little kind of anecdote speaks to one of the great tensions and questions that followers of Jesus Christ have asked themselves and have wrestled with down through the centuries. And that is, as followers of Jesus, as God's chosen and set apart people, as Peter says, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for God, how are we to interact with the world? How are we to engage with and interact with a world and a system that in, in virtually every regard runs completely counter to what God calls us to in Jesus Christ? How are Christians to engage in the world? And they, we, followers of God, again, have been asking themselves, really since God revealed himself to his people way back in the desert outside of Egypt. So if you remember the, the biblical story, the biblical narrative coming into Exodus, Abraham's descendants are slaves in Egypt. God rescues them out of slavery in Egypt, takes them into the wilderness. He meets with them at Mount Sinai. He, a guy named Moses goes up and meets with God, and God gives, uh, makes a covenant with his people there at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant. He, he gives them a law, regulations, rules for living. And one of the primary thrusts of that Mosaic Covenant, of that Mosaic law, was to set apart God's people from every other nation, every other people group on earth as unique and distinct. And so as we have moved down through the centuries, followers of God has con have continued to wrestle with, with what does it look like for us to engage with the world? How do we interact with the world? And some have gone a very conservative route. I would say there's been, they, they've had a very hem heavy emphasis on truth. Just a few hundred years after Jesus, we saw the beginning of the monastic movement where followers of God decided, I cannot exist in these structures in this world anymore. And so they literally went to the desert. They went to the wilderness, either to live by themselves or to live in communities, to separate themselves from the sinfulness and unholiness of the peoples of the world. In, in our times, we have, uh, we have people groups like the Amish, who growing up in Northeast Ohio, had a lot of interaction in Amish communities who have decided the best way they can follow and serve God is by essentially cutting themselves off from the rest of the world. And I need to be careful when I say this because it's not at the same level as those two examples. But even today with our denominational structure, there's an element of how do we set the lines of delineation? What's who's in and who's out? How do we make sure that truth is upheld? Now, there's other groups that have taken the other approach. I would say a much more liberal approach. Uh, maybe a heavier emphasis on grace than on truth. I heard last week, uh, and I don't know which one is the outlier, but I heard last week that every single one of the universities that we consider Ivy League universities, except for one, every one of them started initially as training grounds for ministry. What happened? Like, like not... Not so much anymore. Uh, there are a lot of what we would call um, the mainline Protestant denominations who, when they were founded, were very faithful to Scripture and very faithful to what, we think, what I think God's heart would be for his followers, but, but have gone 
kind of the way of if you can't beat them, join them. And it's not like it's a fight. But, but today, there are many denominations that bear little resemblance to what actually God calls his people to look like. And they've done so in the name of love, acceptance. And those are beautiful things and, and Jesus things for sure. But I'm not sure we would say they line up with the heart of God for what his people should look like either. And so, 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 so what are we to do? How are we as followers of God? Which, which path is the better path? The, the, the conservative, we're going to stand on truth. The liberal, we're going to emphasize grace. Well, do you remember what, what the evangelist John says he saw when he saw Jesus in the first chapter of John? He says he saw a man full of what? Grace and truth. And so I think what we need to do is we need to look at Jesus to help us answer this question. How are we as Christians? How are we as followers of God to interact with the world. So just briefly to, to catch us up on our context, we are in the Gospel of Mark, which we have been in for many, many, many months. And I think it's been awesome, whether you do or not. Uh, and I know, yeah, you can clap for that, for sure. It's another, half, it's another half-hearted one, but we'll, we'll, we'll take what we can get. Um, we're jumping, we've jumped around a little bit, right, because of Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Palm Sunday. We used the Mark text that were a little bit ahead of where we were. Uh, and the good news is that, with that, is we knocked out a big chunk of the last part of Mark in the, the Holy Week sermons and messages. Uh, but just as I stand here before you today, we are going to finish this gospel if it is the last thing we do. Okay? So, so we're riding with it. Uh, so we're going back to where we left off, and really we only have about two chapters left. So it, it's not going to be that much longer, depending on how finely we cut up the, the sections in Mark. Uh, and as we come to the context for where we're at today, remember Jesus has just entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the uh, adoration of the crowds. And up to this point, Jesus has been doing his ministry in Galilee and the surrounding regions. And while he has been up there, the religious leaders and the social leaders and the political leaders of, Jerus of, of the Israelites in Jerusalem, they've sent some delegations up there to find out what this strange rabbi is doing. But for the most part, they've kind of let him do his thing. But now he has come into the city of Jerusalem, into the heart of the religious, social, uh, political capital of Israel. And those religious leaders are like, it's kind of one thing if you're out there, but if you're going to come up here, you know, you're going to face some opposition. And so he and his disciples are now kind of in the belly of the beast. And through the end of chapter 11 and all through chapter 12, we get a series of questions that the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees are bringing to Jesus to try and trap him. And today's question deals with taxes. Kind of a lame subject, right? So I titled my series, or this sermon, Tax Day, because they're coming to him asking him about taxes. Should we pay taxes to Rome? What they're really asking is, should we be subject to an authority other than God? But then at the even deeper level, what I think they're really asking him, and this is at least where we're going to go with this message, is how are we to interact with the world around us? As followers of God, what does it look like to interact with the political, social, economic structures of a world that is not set up to support and point people towards the one that we believe is a living God. How are we to interact with the world? We're going to see three things that I think help us answer that question. And the first is just like a, a, a basis, a, a basic of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a, a disciple of Jesus Christ that I think is going to help us uh, set a foundation for the other two truths we're going to look at as we look through this passage. So the first thing I want us to see, the first thing I want us to draw out of this passage is this. We live for an audience of one. As followers of God, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we live for an audience 
of one. So picking back up in verse 13, uh, it says, and they sent to him. Now that they refers back to 11, verse 27, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are coming to him. We've got a couple of they's between then and now, and it's still them. They, the chief priests, the elders and the scribes, sent to him, sent to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, do you know what that is? That is some Markan irony. Okay, we know about Markan sandwiches. We may have another one before this series is up. This is Markan irony because these guys are coming to Jesus and they're using flattery. What is flattery? Saying something you don't believe to someone's face. What is gossip? Saying something that's not true behind someone's face. So they're coming to Jesus saying, we know you're true. We know you teach the way of God. But they don't believe that, do they? Because they're trying to prove, discredit him. But the irony is he is true. And he does teach the way of God. With benefit of hindsight, we have that. But this is what I want us to see. When they say, for you are not swayed by appearances... Now, in the ESV, I have a footnote. You may have a footnote depending on what translation you're looking at. That's not exactly what the Greek says. A, a more literal Greek translation would say, you do not look at people's faces. And I love that. It's not saying that Jesus walked around in his time with his face down, not looking at anyone's face. It's a, a euphemism is not the right word, but you understand what I'm getting at. It, what, what, is it, what is it saying? It's saying he didn't care what people thought about him. In a very good and healthy way, he wasn't walking around looking at people's faces to see how they responded, to see if they approved or disapproved, to see if they liked him or if they didn't like him because he only cared about one opinion. Only one opinion mattered to Jesus and that was God the Father's. He was living for an audience of one. And what was true of Jesus is true for us as well. We are called to live for an audience of of one. Uh, when I started dating my wife, Beth, in college, she was the first uh, serious girlfriend that I had ever had. And it was amazing how when I began to fall in love with her, how little I cared what other people thought and how important her opinion was to me. So when we started dating, I started running all of my decisions or virtually all of my decisions through the filter of what will Beth think about this? So when I got up in the morning and I got dressed and I used to put on what I thought would be comfortable and look cool, which wasn't that cool, I understand. Now I was thinking, what will Beth think looks cool? And I'm telling you right now, if Beth at some point in our relationship had been like, I love a man in tights, I would have I I pranced around my college campus in tights because I was living for an audience of one. When my friends, when my boys were like, we're hanging out, and for 90% of my college career was like, I'm there, whatever we're doing. Now it was like, maybe I can come. I wanna check and see what Beth is doing first because I was living for an audience of one. You know how they have that new uh, portrait mode on iPhone cameras, if you got the new fancy ones? Maybe they have it on Google Pixels, no disrespect, or Samsungs, or you know, whatever we're all using. I just, mine happens to be an iPhone. What does portrait mode do? 
It gives you a super clear, high-definition picture of the subject of the picture, and it makes the rest of the picture blurry. And see, when I started dating Beth, my worldview became one super high-definition picture of her, and everything else was blurry. All the other faces were blurry. And that is how God calls us to live when we are his disciples. We are living for an audience of one. And so when we survey the picture of our lives, when we look out on our lives, what we should see is one super high definition picture of one person, and that is God. And everything else should blur in comparison because his is the opinion, the only opinion that matters. There is freedom in that. And someone needs to hear that today because we do a pretty crummy job of it, myself, totally myself included, and it's what we're called to do. Like, look, when I preach, I'm not preaching to you. I don't, I, I don't care what you think about me. I do care what you think about me, and that's, and that's just me being real. But I shouldn't because there's just, I should see as I'm up here a picture of one high-definition person and a bunch of blurry faces because I'm preaching for an audience of one. And, 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 and the same is true for you in whatever it is that God has called you to do in your life. You are not, you are not doing life for your mom and your dad. Kids, obey, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. But you are not ultimately responsible to them, less so, you're responsible to them less so than you're ultimately responsible to God. You are not doing life for your aunties and your uncles, for your cousins. You're not doing life for your, your grandkids. You're not doing life for your boss. You're not doing life for your coach or for your teammates or for the, the people at the club. There is one opinion that matters and it is God's. And so everything we do as followers of Jesus Christ should be filtered through that one question, what, is God, what will God think about this? When, what, what clothes am I going to wear today? What clothes would God like me to wear? I know that's kind of, I mean, you know, catch, catch the illustration. What house should I live in? What, what house would God like me to live in? What car should I drive? What job should I have? Who should I marry? All of those things filtered through. What's God's opinion? Because as followers of Jesus Christ, we are living for an audience of one. Okay, so that's the first thing. Now here's the second thing I want us to see after we are living for an audience of one. We need to, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to let the world have the things that belong to it. We need to let the world have the things that belong to it. Moving along in the story. Uh, so they, 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 they give this flattery to Jesus. You, you're not swayed by appearances. They're right about that, but truly teach the way of God. They're right about that. And then they say this, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they come to him and they're like, Jesus, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And for a little bit of cultural context, here's where Israel was at that time. They were under Roman occupation, which means the emperor Caesar, at, the time, at this time when this incident is happening, this, the, the emperor is Tiberius Caesar. He has, um, he has rule and reign over Palestine, where Israel is. This is a source of incredible discouragement, despair, shame for the uh, Israelites. And so they're coming to Jesus, and they're, they're trying to trap him, right? Because there's no good answer to this question because uh, the, the Jewish people think it's abhorrent 
that they're occupied by another nation in the promised land and that they would have to pay taxes to a, a foreign nation is, is horrible. And so if he says, um, yes, you should pay taxes, they think, well, then the Jewish people are gonna be pretty disappointed with Jesus. But conversely, if he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, then the Roman authorities are gonna wanna have to, they're gonna wanna talk to Jesus. They're gonna have something to say to him because everyone was required to pay taxes. The tax was the, the Roman poll tax. Its, its cost per person was a denarius, which was a coin issued by Rome that was worth about one day's wages for a common laborer. On one side, it had a picture of Tiberius Caesar. On the other side, it had an inscription that referred to him as the divine son. So the coin itself was highly offensive to Jewish people because it had a graven image and it had an, an inscription ascribing divinity to someone other than God. And so how does Jesus amazingly, how does he thread the needle in answering this question? It's why they say at the end of verse 17 they were amazed because he, of how he answered this question. What does he say? He says, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. I love this. He's like, they're like, should we pay taxes? And Jesus is like, anyone got a denarius? And the Pharisees pull out a wad and they're like, ripping off bills. So, so even the question is disingenuous, right? Because Jesus doesn't even have one. They are certainly paying the tax because otherwise they wouldn't be there. They'd be in prison. And they're happy to provide a denarius because they got probably a bunch of them with them. And, and what does he say to them? Who's, whose picture is on that? And they're like, it's Caesar's. And he's like, well, then give it to Caesar. It was understood even at that time, it was not understood is not the right word. It was known that those coins were his property. Even though they were in circulation, they were his property because he issued them. Because it had his likeness on it, because it had his picture on it, that showed who it belongs to. And so what Jesus says is you don't need to get so worked up about this. It's not that big of a deal. Whose picture is on it? And they're like, it's Caesar's. And he's like, well, then it's Caesar's. So, so give it to him. It's not a big deal to give him the things that are already his. And what I believe he is saying implicitly is you can function in the systems and structures of a broken and sinful world and still be faithful to me. All you need to do is learn to understand what is the world's and what is God's. And when we can determine what is the world's, then you can give it back to the world because it owns it already. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Let the world have the things that already belong to it. When I was in, uh, well, it doesn't matter when I was, my grandparents retired from, the, from New England out to the Central Coast. And so when I started coming out here to visit them in high school, uh, to the Central Coast, that's when I fell in love with California. I'm like, like what, for a kid from the Midwest, like what is this place? And, and how, who, who, who won the lottery of life that they get to live here? Uh, especially the Central Coast. I have little different feelings about the Bay Area, but you know, track, track with me. One of the things I love about the Central Coast is kind of the culture. And I love how unlike, I assume unlike LA, I haven't spent a lot of time in LA, and unlike the Bay, it's a little bit slower. And it still preserves a lot of like the history of the westward expansion in this country. And so uh, there's, there's like farms and ranches and cowboys and steer and like pickup trucks. And it's just this, it's this amazing blend of 
like surfer culture and cowboys. And it's just, it's just cool. And it's kind of like the blend we have here in the Bay Area of nerds and Teslas. It's like, like this just kind of crazy blend. Anyway, uh, one of the things that cowboys used to do, I don't know that they still do it, one of the things that ranchers used to do, you know, there's, there's cattle ranches down there on the Central Coast. Uh, the way that they would mark out their cattle as belonging to them is they would brand them. Now, we can, I'm, I'm not here to debate the morality of that or anything. I don't know how much it happens now. It used to be a lot when multiple farms or ranchers would allow their cattle to graze together. They needed a way to know whose cattle belonged to who. And so they would put a mark on those animals that was a picture. It was either their initials or some kind of insignia, some kind of mark that marked out those animals as belonging to a certain ranch or to a certain farmer. Our world does the same thing. There are things all around us that are branded by the world as belonging to it. There are things all around us that are marked by the world as belonging to it. Like, we can do a one-for-one -one example uh, just based on this, this text. Uh, whose image is on our money? George Washington's. And so we're like, he's dead, so it's mine now. No. It's our government. And I tried to look this up, and I couldn't, I, it took too long, and I couldn't find it. I think our tender, I think our bills and coins are considered the property of the U.S. government. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong. But, but like, this isn't the point of the passage. But should a Christian pay their taxes? Yes. yes. Because we can give to the world what belongs to the world. And, and, and you know what else, like, ha, I think has the mark of, of the world, has the branding of the world on it? Um, like, clamoring for power. That has, that, that's the world's. And, 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 and Jesus' kingdom is the upside-down kingdom where he says the first will be last. And so we can give power to the world. We can give greed. We can let the world have greed. Anger. We can, we can, that has the world's mark on it. We can give it to it. Selfishness. Uh, un, un, ungodly ambition. Uh, abuse. Lying. So on and so forth. Those things don't have God's mark on them. They have the mark of the world. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we can give those things to the world. I know it's easier said than done, but when push comes to shove and there's a power struggle at work, we don't have to engage in that because, because we know we answer to an audience of one and we don't have to play by the world's rules. We can let the things that belong to the world, we can let the world have the things that belong to it. And then the third thing I want us to see is this. We need to give God the things that belong to him. We need to give God the things that belong to him. So Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin. And that word likeness in Greek is the word akon, which is the word that we get in English, icon, which can also be translated image. So Jesus says to these guys, whose image is on that coin? And they say, it's Caesar's. And he says, well, then it belongs to Caesar, and you can let him have it. And the question that he, Mark doesn't record him asking, but I believe the question that is completely implied in this text is, and, and what I kind of, not that I have, not that I know better than Jesus. He says he does it all right. But what I kind of wish he had asked is this, and whose image is on you? And if we look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we see this. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. So when Jesus says, then give to God the things that are God's, what is he saying? I don't think he's saying, then give God your tithe, give God your worship, give God your time at Bible study during the week. He is saying, whose image is on you? And we bear God's image on us. And so if he's saying, then give to God what is God's, if Caesar's face on the coin meant that coin belonged to him, then God's image on us means we belong to God. And so Jesus is saying, he's, he's not saying God wants your, your tithe or your treasure or your talent. He's saying he wants you. He wants your heart. He's saying give yourself to God. And all we need to do, all we need to learn to do, part of sanctification as followers of Jesus is to learn to figure out what has Caesar's mark on it and what has God's mark on it. I've got, uh, I've got four children. And if you see a, a bunch of kids running around this church and you're like, those are well put together, articulate, beautiful children. <laughs> my guess is you're like, they must be Gary's. No, they must be Beth's. And it's not as true for our kids. They're, it's not like, they're not like spitting image, but you all know what it is like to see someone and their child and you're like, it's like uh, Dr. Evil and Mini-Me. It's like that is the spitting image. That is the spitting image of their parent. And if you were to look at uh, my wife's pictures of when she was our daughter's ages, you'd be like, oh, they bear her image. And, and it is the same for us. We bear God's image and likeness. We don't know exactly what God looks like. But we do, in some sense, because as Colossians tells us, Jesus was the image of the invisible God. And we know that we are made in God's image. And so even though we don't know exactly what God looks like, we can get a picture of what he looks like simply by looking at each other because we are image bearers of God the Father. And I know I've said it already, but I just want to say it again. So when Jesus says, then give to God the things that are God's, I don't think he's saying God wants your money, God wants your time, God wants your talents, God wants your sacrifices. He's saying God wants you. God wants your heart. Because he knows if he gets your heart, he'll get your time, he'll get your talent, and he'll get your treasure along with it. We are called to give ourselves to the one whose image we bear. So how, in light of that, are we supposed to interact with the world? How are we possibly to interact with a, a system and structure that seems so opposed to the way of God and the things that he calls us to? Well, I believe the takeaway from this text is that we are to engage with the world. I believe that Jesus is telling us in this text that you can be a part of the, the social, political, economic, whatever else, fallen systems of our world and still be faithful to God because we can still bear his image in all of those arenas by, by being able to discern what belongs to the world, what belongs to Caesar, and what belongs to God. So here's the takeaway. I think we can go to school. We can get educated. We can work on degrees. We can enter the workplace. We can vote in elections. We can pay taxes. We can serve in public office. We can buy property, we can own assets, we can invest, we can go on vacation, 
We can have hobbies. We can go to games. We can cheer for sporting teams. We can do all of those things and still be faithful to God. And in fact, I think we should. Because how are we going to love our neighbor if we don't know our neighbor? How are we going to serve the needy if we don't live with the needy? How are we going to bring the good news that there is salvation found in Jesus Christ to people that we don't even know? How beautiful are the, on the mountains are the feet of those who what? Wait for those who come to them and ask them about the good news? No. How beautiful are the feet who bring the good news? We can be part of the world and still be set apart as God's chosen people. So as I wrap this up, and I want to invite the worship team to come back up as I conclude, um, I failed. I have a great amount of regret at how I handled my relationships with my, some of my closest friends coming out of high school, into college, and into the post-college years. I wish I had gone to the parties. I wish I had gone to the bar after I was 21. I, I wish I had continued to reach out. I wish I had continued to text. I wish I had continued to make the effort. I wish I had sat with my friends whose families were a mess, who were wrestling with issues of identity, who were questioning their sexuality. I wish instead of backing away, I had leaned in further. Not to like condone, not to be like, hey, I'm just one of the guys, but to, but to walk out in real time how much I genuinely loved them. And I say that because I think it's what Jesus would have done. And I, and I can only say I think it's what Jesus would have done because it's what Jesus did. Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because he hung out with gluttons and drunkards and tax collectors and sinners. He didn't look at their lives and say, mm, I can't be associated with this. I can't be a part of this. Why? Because he wasn't looking at people's faces. He was looking at the hearts of people that he loved. He did some scandalous stuff. Do you know how scandalous it was for Jesus to go to Zacchaeus' house? That's a sermon for another day. Do you know how scandalous it was when he was at that dinner party with the religious leaders and the social elites and a woman of the night came in and threw herself at his feet and wept all over his feet and let down her hair, which was not a good thing for a woman to do in that society, and, and cleaned his feet with her tears and her hair? How awkward was that? Can you imagine if that happened right now? We would be like frozen. And, and we have a lot more liberality than they did in first century Palestine. He was looking at their hearts. He wasn't looking at the faces of the people around, it, around him. And not only is it what Jesus did, it's what he does. And it's what he's still doing. And the reason I can say that with so much confidence is because there is nobody in this room watching online or anywhere else who deserves Jesus' love, compassion, kindness, grace, and salvation less than me. And yet he, he freely has lavished it upon me. And even though time and time again, I'm like, this has the world's mark. Ooh, I think I want that. Jesus keeps coming back and coming back and coming back and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. You are mine. You are forgiven. I love you. So how do we interact with the world? Graciously 
and winsomely as, as, as best we can, we show it that it is loved by a God who is greater than anything it could do or say. We can show the world that they are made in God's image, that he loves them and that he died for them. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. Let's pray. God, it's not easy uh, to navigate this life, to navigate this sinful, broken world, a good world that you created and said it was good, but, but, but sin has marred. It's not easy for us to navigate what, how, how to live, how to walk, how to, how to stay on the road following you in discipleship. And so, God, I just pray that you would impress on the hearts of those of us who are here this morning, that you would impress on us as a family at ALCF, that we can actually be in the world and not of it, at the same time. I pray, God, that this would be a place that is known for its kindness, its compassion, its grace, that we are welcoming of anyone because but for the grace of God go we. But I also pray, God, that you would help us to stand on truth and be faithful to you and faithful to your word. Help us to live for an audience of one such that each one of us, when we stand before you someday, might hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today's a communion Sunday, and so we're now going to transition into our time of communion. Um, if you hopefully picked up the elements, if you don't have the elements, uh, if you just put your hand up, uh, we'll have some folks in the back who could get you uh, the communion elements. We are just going to sit quietly for a few moments and uh, reflect on what God might be speaking to us, and then I will lead us in taking communion together in just a few moments. Uh, if you are here and you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, I would just invite you to pass on taking communion with us this morning. Scripture is clear that this is for those who have uh, bowed their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their life. But if that's you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is no better moment than right now to make the decision to follow him. And I or any one of our ministry leaders would love to talk to you after the service about what that means. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments and prepare our hearts to take the communion elements together. Please stand. Please take the bread and hear these words from Scripture. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. And now the cup. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Amen. Thank you, Lord. We just bless your name. And we are amazed at how he loves us.
would love to see you all tonight at five o'clock for the party. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. You're loved and you're prayed for and you are sent.